that uh, the Word of God, if you have a copy of God's Word, open to Matthew chapter 6, the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, which is probably about 75% of the way, maybe 70% of the way through your Bible. If you're making your way through, uh, the Bible's broken up into the Old and New Testament. The New Testament, the book of Matthew, is when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ arrives in human flesh and his ministry begins what we now call the New Testament and, of course, the covenant of grace that we um, know as believers and we trust as believers that in him and in Jesus Christ, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in hope solely in him, we find salvation. And so here we are um, in Matthew chapter 6 today. The, uh, I like to give kind of a thesis idea. This helps me as a communicator um, to, to kind of summarize what, what I'm hoping and aiming to, to share uh, from God's Word, a summary from God's Word. And so this big idea today I wanted to share with you as we begin is this, that the big idea of our, 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 our text this morning and this, this time in God's Word this morning is this, that a kingdom, the kingdom of God that is, a kingdom priority calls us to trust God for what we essentially need and prioritize what He ultimately desires. A kingdom Priority calls us to trust God for what we essentially need and prioritize what he ultimately desires. We have parachuted right into the middle of Jesus' first public sermon. Arguably the greatest sermon ever preached. I think you could certainly make that point. And certainly one of Jesus' most significant because he was introducing his public earthly ministry and he was reshaping an understanding of the kingdom of God through, uh, through this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Some would argue that this is the greatest discourse on moral behavior that was ever given. But this sermon, this discourse was not intended to be primarily about moral behavior. This sermon was a reshaping of, of God's kingdom in the hearts and minds of people. This was a sermon so that people could re-understand God's intention and purpose for his kingdom. Because people had, people had heard the law of God. Uh, likely those who were gathered and were listening to this sermon that day, they had heard the law of Moses before. And many of them, sadly, had come to this persuasion and understanding and thought that in order to appease God, in order to relate rightly with God, I need to know the law of God and keep it. Keep it to the T to do my very best. And that will somehow, on the ultimate and final scale of God's justice, that will appease and satisfy God. Well, Jesus was teaching people a very different idea about the kingdom. He was teaching people that in order to have a right relationship with God, they must come through the one and only Messiah, the mediator, which was Jesus Christ. He was teaching people that their choices did not start um, with their hands, it started with their hearts. That, that um, what was happening in this sermon was that uh, these people were used to and accustomed to obeying sort of a lifeless law. And Jesus was teaching them that um, if you want to relate rightly with God, understand that the motives and intentions of your heart begin that relationship. And if you want to have it in right standing, you must come through Jesus Christ. So he really reshaped, been turned on, turned people's thinking, really turned it on their head and, and helped them understand it in a whole new way. In fact, the, the audience that Jesus was speaking to was very much indicative of his message. You can see 
Uh, I know you ask you to turn to chapter 6, but maybe just flip a page to the left. You can see in chapter 4, verses 23 through 25, here was the audience of people. I don't know if you've ever thought about this for this sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached, but listen to the, the people that were gathered here, okay? This is chapter 4, verse 23, starting there. And he went, Jesus that is, throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So you see the, the, uh, the audience gathered here? This was, this was a ragtag group of people. They were gathering and following him because he was a miracle worker. That was at least their first um, uh, introduction to Jesus. They were interested in him because of the miraculous healings and things he was providing. But this was a, this was a hurting, forgotten um, a beaten down group of people that had gathered to hear this sermon. And so it's no surprise that the very first thing Jesus said when he opened his mouth in this sermon was, blessed are you who are poor in spirit, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And when he said poor in spirit, what he, uh, what he implied is this, that the poverty that these people were, were um, experiencing was certainly and understandably a physical poverty. Okay, they all knew what it meant to be in need. These were people, likely the vast majority of audience, who were day laborers, perhaps, and they were anticipating one day after the next. How will we survive this day? How will God give us our daily bread in order to make it through this day? Perhaps some of them had very little to their name whatsoever, and they were uh, uh, hurting people. So they, they got it when Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, because this, this term poor, there's a couple of different words in the New Testament that are used to describe poverty, one of which was used in um, Mark, cha uh, excuse me, Mark chapter 12, I believe, when Jesus was speaking about and highlighting the, um, uh, the widow who, who came to, the, to worship and she gave just a small amount of money. Remember the widow's mite? And Jesus pointed to her and said, this poor woman has brought all that she had. Now, that poor was different than the poor here in Matthew chapter 5. Because that poor is representative of someone who has means, but just barely enough to get by. And each day they're just accumulating just enough to stay ahead of survival. But when Jesus spoke here in Matthew chapter 5 and he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, this is a different word, different poverty here. The poverty that Jesus spoke of here was really and truly of an indigent sort. You have nothing you can produce no means and provide nothing for yourself that can keep you going. And so the only way you're going to continue is if you bow your head in humility and reach up your hand in faith and trust someone else to provide for your needs. And so think about the audience here that Jesus was speaking to. So when he said these words, many of them said, I get that. That's, that's my very existence. That's my daily occurrence. I understand, Jesus, what it means to be poor in spirit. Now, how can I obtain the kingdom of heaven? And so we arrive here in Matthew chapter 6. We're kind of parachuting in the middle of this text in verse 25 through 33. So Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 33 is where our major featured text is. And this is, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. So if your wording is slightly different, you might understand why. This is what it says. God's word says, Therefore, I tell you, 
Jesus speaking here, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. And we can stop there. Now, I, I think that when we, when we encounter Scripture... It's helpful to sometimes acknowledge uh, certain realities. And I think that we arrive at one here, okay? Given an honest assessment of this passage, of the context of these people, in comparison to who we are in the day and age that we live in, with the magnitude of blessing that God has provided, it's a little difficult to relate. Wouldn't you agree? To some degree. I mean, I relate to Scripture. I get it. I value it. And I appreciate and I welcome what Jesus has said into my life. But it's a little hard to, to relate to some degree. There was a pastor in, in Fort Lauderdale who, um, at one point in time when he was preaching, he, he gave some interesting and fascinating um, perspective for us as we exist and function here in um, the greatest country that has ever existed <laughs> in history. Would any of you agree with that? Amen. I believe that. I believe that God has blessed and provided for this country in ways that have, uh, have been um, unprecedented in history. And I believe much of that is because of the way and reasons and manner in which this country was founded so much on principles that are faithful to God's word. He said this, that if you broke the planet down into just a group of 100, so 100%, okay, it would look something like this. Within that 100, there would be 51 women and there would be 49 men. Now, you think God knows what he's doing? Wow. 59, or 51 women, 49 men. Now, young men, that doesn't mean that, like, the odds are always in your favor. That's not what I mean when I say God knows what he's doing, that, yeah, I just got a couple percentages, there's, so there's... More ladies out there than there are young men. No, that's not what I mean. I mean, look at the closeness of population, men and women, and how God planned for us to be able to fulfill and keep his very first command, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Even from then, God was uh, making a beautiful plan. Out of that hundred, 70 people would be of a faith other than Christianity, which means 30% of the world at least claims some form of Christianity, whether it is biblical gospel Christianity, uh, I, I, I'm not saying, but 70% would be outside of Christianity. 80 of that 100 would live in substandard housing. That means that they wouldn't have something like running water or they might not have electricity. 80 out of 100. 50 would be now malnourished. That means that they're living off of perhaps one small meal a day. 70 would be illiterate. 
And ready for this? Six of the 100 would possess half the planet's wealth and live in the United States of America. Wow, that's, that's stunning, right? Now, we are a blessed people. I, I've never known poverty. I've never known need. I've never known the experience of wondering where a next meal will come from by God's grace and his kindness and mercy towards me. I've never known that. Even with the financial challenges that Americans face today, it doesn't seem bad when you consider this, that <clears throat> of the 6.6 or close to closing in on 7 billion people in the planet, nearly half of them live on $2 a day. According to the Global Rich List, if you make $60,000 a year or more, you are in the top 1% of the wealthiest people on the planet. All right, this is pretty staggering. Okay, students, listen to this. If you make $800 a year, you are about, um, you're about dead, uh, dead in the middle, middle of the wealthiest people on the planet, okay? Which means half, our teenagers here in this room are most likely wealthier than half of the people on this planet. The perspective is a little bit staggering when we try to connect our thoughts to Jesus' words when he says, don't concern yourself with essential needs like food and water and what you're going to put on and where you're going to lay your head at night, but prioritize the kingdom of God. It's hard for us to think about the comparison of Jesus' audience and ourselves. But here's, there's some helpful things here. How do, we, how do we wrap our minds around the commands of our Savior in Matthew 6, 25 through 33? Well, I've kind of summarized this into a, a few brief thoughts that we'll, we'll spend the remainder of our time with this morning. And they are these. No matter how healthy and wealthy and wise you and I may be, first is this. Earthly priorities tempt us to fear. Earthly priorities tempt us to fear. That's why in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks and he says this. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. Now, uh, a good teacher in, in college, in Bible school, taught me this. When there is a therefore, you always ask, what is the? Therefore, therefore, right? Yeah, so why did he say therefore? What was in, in light of, so Jesus is saying, in light of a truth that I've just spoken do not be anxious. So we have to look back just a couple verses here uh, in chapter 6, verse 19 through 22. When Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroys and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The first kind of subthought under this idea that earthly priorities tempt us to fear is this that no matter what you accumulate on this earth, it simply cannot last. This is the context of Matthew 6, 25 through 33. Jesus had just said, if you're going to store up and you're going to build up uh, things of this earth where moth will destroy and thieves can break in and steal and they never last, what ultimate value are you going to have and find in those things? No matter what you accumulate on this earth, it simply cannot last. Nothing tangible that you encounter here is eternal. So why would we worry about accumulating what cannot possibly uh, remain? A second thought, kind of a, a sub-point under this is, no matter what our material status, we're tempted to be anxious about our lives. No matter what things you have accumulated on this earth, there is a temptation for us to be fearful about our lives. Now, Jesus was speaking to people who were nearly impoverished. 
and some of them quite literally reaching up their hands for a daily provision. And I would imagine that the vast majority, perhaps no one in this room, is at that point of existence or uh, of need. And uh, maybe that's because within the context of a church family, God has provided and served your needs, jobs or relationships or uh, provisions at a time of need that you have had. And thank God for even just a church family in context. But I imagine maybe no one is at the point where the audience was that Jesus spoke to that day. But here's, here's what I want to highlight, though. No matter if you are impoverished or have um, generations of wealth, earthly priorities tempt us to fear. If you're, not, if you're not anxious, as Jesus was speaking literally about having clothes, maybe your anxiety lies in the manner of clothes that you have or the volume or the style or what people think of you. Your anxiety is fulfilled up in that. If, if, if you're not experiencing food insecurity like one in eight people in our country experience. Uh, if you're not experiencing food insecurity, perhaps you fret over the quality of food or the volume of food that you have. Um, being anxious, here's, here's uh, I would suggest, this is the most controversial thing that I'll say today, okay? And so uh, if you were just about to doze off with disinterest, now I said I'm going to offer the most controversial thought today. Maybe that'll perk our attention back up just for a moment to hear this. Jesus said that being anxious about these things is a choice. Anxiety over these things is a choice. That's why he said, Jesus said in verse 25, therefore, do not be anxious. Now, here's the thing. I, I'm not suggesting that there are, not, there are not certain physical issues that take place in a person's life where they would need needful medical attention. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a physician. I am, uh, I am a pastor, and I'm a counselor of God's truth. I would offer you the truth of God's word. So I'm not suggesting there are not terms and circumstances where people have that kind of need that it shouldn't be tended to. But Jesus said, when it comes to the essentials of your needs and your existence, when it comes to the very things that keep your life moving, you should not be anxious because it is a choice to be anxious about that which God has promised he would provide. Nearly, did you know this, that nearly 70% of Americans are on some type of prescription drugs? The vast majority of those are related to depression and anxiety. Um, antidepressant meds have doubled in the past 12 years as far as usage. Uh, there, there are people who are nervous about their safety in public settings, like this one. Uh, people are concerned and anxious about the political landscape. 70% uh, of Americans have less than $1,000 in the bank. People are wondering more than ever before if they can count on financial or physical or political or medical or relational stabilities in their lives that once they felt were very firm and now... They're not so sure. And in the midst of that message to the people in Jesus' day and still currently to us in our day, Jesus commands us not to be anxious because it is a choice to be anxious about matters that God has promised to provide for us. And anxiety is, in this manner, is essentially what? A lack of, a lack of faith. That's why Jesus said in verse 30, when he had described and exhorted them not to be anxious, and when he had 
proven to them through creation and God's care and provision in creation. Then he said to them, oh, you and us of little faith. When we, when we have anxious thoughts over those things that God has promised to provide. And when he says, do not be anxious about your life, this, this idea, this term life is uh, the term suke, and it, it's, its context is really a, a counseling term that is used uh, nowadays. In, in biblical counseling, we might describe, describe someone as a complex unity, okay? A complex unity. That means that we are a, a, a number of things. We are, are physical, we are mental, we are emotional, we are spiritual. And that which affects my life physically has a direct effect on my life spiritually. So like for instance, I'm the type of person my wife well knows and my children know secondarily that if I don't get adequate rest for a regular amount of time, I am not as spiritually well, well done as, as I should be. <laughs> I'm grumpy. That's what I'm really trying to say, okay? Let's not sugarcoat it. I mean, I, I'm not so kind. I'm not as patient. I'm not as, uh, as loving. I, I struggle with clarity of thoughts. When I haven't rested physically, I struggle in, in ways spiritually. And you know what? When, uh, <clears throat> when uh, Cain had murdered his brother in the Old Testament and God approached him and he said, Cain, why are you so downcast? Why are you so discouraged. <laughs> it is literally showing on your countenance because the sinfulness of his participation and behavior had literally shown up physically in his, in his countenance. We are a complex unity. What one aspect of us, when one aspect of us is affected, it affects the entirety of our person. And Jesus says here, this complex unity of your life, he says, let it rest in the hands of a sovereign good, benevolent God. Amen? In essence, trust God with your whole person, your physical provision, your mental and emotional well-being, and your spiritual stability. A really faithful pastor and author named D.A. Carson said of this, this portion of the text this. He said, in effect, Jesus answers that just as earthly possessions can become an idol which deposes or unseats God, by, come, by becoming disproportionately important, just as things can become disproportionately important in our lives, so also can earthly needs become a source of worry which deposes God by fostering distrust. Jesus said, do not be anxious about these essential things because these are things that he has promised to provide. One last thought under this number one, and then we'll move on, which the one is the largest of the three. God's provision for his creation is evidence that we don't need to be anxious. God's provision for his creation is evidence to us that we don't need to be anxious. So it, Jesus illustrates a couple different things. He says, look at birds of the air. They neither sow nor toil nor um, reap. They don't have a 401k. And Jesus said, but your heavenly Father still meets their needs. He said, how about lilies in the field? Simple little flowers that have very little ability to keep their existence going. And yet your heavenly Father clothes them greater than King Solomon, who was the, perhaps uh, arguably the wealthiest person of all history. 
They are clothed with beauty and glory because they're clothed and designed by God himself. And they're here today and gone tomorrow because they have a period of time and purpose in God's plan and then they're gone. And Jesus says, if God so feeds birds and clothes the lilies of the field, will he not, do you see the text here, will he not have much more uh, take care of your needs? You who are of greater value than these things. Now, um, this, could, this could probably handle its own series, but I'll just, just point this out, okay? Um, my life is more valuable than a bird's life and a lily's life. Your life, no matter which person we're speaking of in here, is of greater essential value to God than the horse Justify who just won the triple crown yesterday. What, what an amazing creature, right? What an amazing example of God's um, um, creativity and power just in one little horse that wins the triple crown yesterday. And people would flock to be enamored by this horse and its rider. And to see that with, uh, the 13th time did we learn in history, uh, it, it, this horse won the triple crown, the fastest horse on the planet in this sprinting distance. What an amazing creature. Now this is going to go and they'll breed and they'll make other ho horses because that's exactly where they can make all this money. and this. Well, guess what? No matter who you are and how simple and how perhaps even low in the point of life that you are in right now, no matter how little value and purpose you see and understand of yourself, you being created in God's image is of greater value than justify hands down because you are created and bear the image of your creator, God. And that beauty and excellence in you that Jesus identifies here gives you the value that is surpassing all of the rest of creation. So Jesus says, if I'll, if I'll feed birds... And I'll clothe lilies. Then why are you going to lay up at night being anxious about things that can't add one hour to your life? Did you know that um, there are studies done? I imagine you do. There was one done at the University College of London um, that did research study that actually determined by their study of over 70,000 patients that anxiety actually shortens one's lifespan. Now you can imagine that, right? Because it's such a drain. It's such a drain to consume yourself with those things that God has already prioritized for your good. Secondly, and this is the shortest of the three thoughts, this. First was earthly priorities tempt us to fear. But secondly, earthly priorities produce temporal pleasures. Earthly priorities produce temporal pleasures. This is what Jesus says in verse 32. Do you see this? He says, for the Gentiles seek after these things. Those who, have, those who have no thought of God to prioritize Him in their lives, they are the ones who are obsessing and anxious over these things. Jesus said in verse 19, like we read, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt, where thieves break in and steal. You can't have any lasting investment there. I love the, uh, uh, the little book that uh, author Randy Alcorn wrote. It's called The Treasure Principle. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of this little book. It's a neat little book, but in that he quotes this, and he simply says this about our earthly investments. He says, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. <laughs> you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. Here's, here's in essence what, what Randy Alcorn was saying. He's saying, earthly treasures cannot be eternal possessions, but earthly investments can make an eternal impact. And that's 
the distinction between someone who prioritizes the kingdom over prioritizing their own personal needs and concerns. What does God call of me for the kingdom's sake? Because earthly priorities produce temporal pleasures that just simply can't last. Here's thirdly this. Thirdly and lastly. Kingdom priorities assure us of a lasting reward. Kingdom priorities assure us of a lasting reward. Let me pose a question to you. Because it is a question that I, I try often to pose to myself. How does your life and your ministry, how do your choices advance the eternal kingdom of God? When Jesus says in verse 33 here, which is the focus of this third point, that kingdom priorities assure us of a lasting reward. When he says, but seek first the kingdom of God, this word seek is a present imperative, implying this, keep on, keep on, diligently, without delay, without stopping, pursuing, seeking, ongoingly seeking the kingdom of God. And, and when he says seek first the kingdom of God. When he says kingdom, he's not implying like a castle, like, hey, let's show up in Orlando and at Magic Kingdom, and oh, there it is, the kingdom of God. No, that's, it's not a, a location and a building and a structure. When he says seek, keep on seeking the kingdom of God, what is meant here is keep on singing, seeking the kingdom to seek uh, and establish God's reign and rule in the hearts of all men, including your own. If you're seeking the kingdom, you're seeking a broad scope of God's work to be done. Not a, an individual location or a point of arrival, but seek first that God's kingdom and God's rule and authority would be established in the hearts of all men, most certainly and specifically your own. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. His righteousness, meaning, am I seeking the things of this world or the things of the world to come? Do you hear these familiar words that are echoed earlier in this same sermon from Jesus? When he said this, Matthew 5, 6, he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because they will be satisfied. You know what is meant by Jesus' words in simple terms? He means this, happy are those who long for an alien righteousness outside of themselves to give them what they cannot produce inside of themselves. Happy are those who see that they are in desperate need for a Savior who will represent the unsearchable God and will rep, uh, to them and will represent the sinner to God. Happy are those who see that I need a mediator between this unsearchable, unknowable God, if it were not for His kindness. And I need a mediator to help represent this lowly, unworthy sinner to God. Happy are those who hunger and thirsty, thirst for God's righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Happy are those who trust Jesus to satisfy God's righteous demands on their behalf. Think, think just for a moment as we finish. Think about the test that this was from our Savior to ask this crowd of people to take no thought of their daily needs, which was a genuine reality for each of their existence. Imagine what a test it was for the Savior to say that to those people, but instead to prioritize the kingdom of God. And what promise accompanied 
this test. In the end of verse 33, Jesus said, and, and you can see it here in the text, and all of these things will be supplied. All of these things will be added to you. God will not fall in any way short of all that you must have in order to accomplish his kingdom purposes. What about people who die? What about believers who die? Well, they've graduated into the eternal kingdom and God's work for them was finished. They accomplished all God's kingdom work that their life uh, represented on this earth. And he, it was time to bring them home to glory, to, uh, uh, to a welcome of well done, good and faithful servant. People who were poor standing here before Jesus this day, they were sick and needy. He tells them, take no thought. Do you, do you and can I, can we trust God so much that we're willing to prioritize his kingdom even over our basic necessities. And then what accompanies this leap of faith to trust God for the advancement of his kingdom? What accompanies this is that he will provide all of our needs. A kingdom priority calls us to trust God for what we essentially need and to prioritize what he ultimately desires. I want to pray with you. And, and after I pray, I want to uh, share some thoughts. And in, in the midst of my, my praying, I, I want to invite our our elders and pastors to come up. And this is a bit of an audible, but um, if Hayward and Aaron could join us up here for a minute, that would be great, okay? Let me pray. Father, we do love you and trust you for all that you call us to. Lord, that you have provided all of our needs and all of the essential provisions, even development in truth and godliness so that we can know you and spread your gospel. And as you have made these promises that you've always kept, Lord, help us to, in return, seek to advance your kingdom with faith and <clears throat> with love. Father, I pray that you would bless um, our church family as we contemplate your commands to us and as we consider how we can imp uh, implement them even in our own individual lives for your kingdom's sake. We thank you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. So the sermon that uh, I've shared today is, is directly related to a, um, a, uh, a decision that I would describe as the hardest decision that my wife and I have made in our lives. Um, <clears throat> we've been uh, diligently praying and for quite some time, and we are trusting the Lord's leading in our lives as I have accepted a family pastor position at a church called Lakewood Ranch Baptist Church in Sarasota, Florida. Our family will be transitioning over there by the time school begins um, this fall. There, there, uh, I wrote this down so I would say it in a, in a helpful way, so please forgive me for looking so often at this page. There, there is simply no way for me to measure and express the goodness of God and the blessings that we have received for serving here at Riverbend for the past 20 years. There's just no way. This is our family. This is the church that first trusted us and loved us. This is the church that cared for us, discipled us, and built a theology and philosophy for church ministry that has prepared us to step out in faith and follow the Lord in the decision that we're making now. 
As many of you know, there has been a stirring in my wife and I for quite some time as to the Lord, as to what the Lord is going to do with us. Um, almost four years ago, many of you remember, if you were in our church four years ago, uh, that I almost took a position that I was sure was God's plan, and by His graciousness and kindness, um, He closed that door. And I believe that the Lord knew that we were needed here for a very important time of challenging transition, as well as the first few years of Pastor Scott's ministry that has brought a whole new means of growth in our lives and in the life of our church. I believe that God knew that we needed that. I'm so thankful that he did not allow us to depart even when we, um, when we anticipated and tried to. Pastor Scott, I, I want you to know this. Pastor Scott has been such a faithful pastor to me through this process. This, this is being announced to you today. So for many of you, you're absorbing this for the first time. But for us, we've been contemplating and praying through this for many months. When I was in the midst of considering this decision, some people would think that this, this would be a risky decision because it may jeopardize my job here. But I, I, I went to Pastor Scott and sought his prayers and counsel about this position. I realized right away when I did that, <clears throat> that he would assist me in discerning God's will through the entire process. In those early conversations, he expressed his love for me and his strong desire for us to stay here and serve for many years if that's how the Lord was leading. And I'm so thankful that I went to him early before we made this decision because he became a true means of wisdom and help for us as we navigated this process that we have recently gone through, that he recently went through himself. As this process and decision unfolded, here's, here's what we came to realize. God is blessing Riverbend and has in so many ways for so many years. There are faithful uh, men and women that I'm, I'm looking at right now and are looking back at me, faithful men and women here who are actively being discipled and equipped to step into ministry roles that will strengthen and serve this church for many years to come. When I think about my family and our life here, we're safe here, we're loved here, we're provided for here, we're happy here. I, I hope and pray that, um, <clears throat> that, that God could give us a, a fraction of the blessing uh, in, in Lakewood Ranch Baptist Church and ministry there, what he has provided for us in the context of our relationship here. But those are not good enough reasons just to stay. Listen to me. Here's, here's what I believe, and I hope that you'll... you'll Consider this with me. God's kingdom is not made of, of silos. It's made of fields. It's not intended to build up real high in one big place altogether. It is made of fields. And the, the more seeds that are sown, the more broader the scope of the fields that are reached. And we came to a place to believe that God, God has blessed and prepared and equipped us for the ministry that we have had here so that we could take it and advance his kingdom in another field to broaden the work of the gospel. God, I think, has equipped our entire family to do this for 20 years and has prepared us to go out and assist a sister church in sowing the gospel in fields in their community. We believe that Lakewood Ranch Church is a sweet and faithful congregation that needs our gifts in ministry. And I know, I know, what probably the first question and thing that you're thinking in your mind is, it's the big question, okay? How on earth are we ever going to be able to replace summer, okay? I know that's what you're thinking. And the answer is, 
Well, she's irreplaceable. That's the, that's the, that's the reality. That's why I'm taking her with me, because she's irreplaceable. <clears throat> but here's what we believe about that, okay? We know how much this departure will hurt because we have been feeling that hurt for this entire process. But we believe this. We will miss you because we love you and because you love us. But we see that God has, is already supplying people in leadership and ministry that will pick up the mantle that we are passing along to them. And we praise God that, that we have an equipping church and a kingdom-minded church that is willing to sacrifice proximity for the greater good of the gospel. And we ask that you join us in prayer as we plan for this next chapter in God's calling upon our lives. And um, we thank you for your love and care for us. Pastor Scott. When I um, arrived here, well, actually, almost three years ago, next month, Gene and I sat right over here as we snuck in here to kind of observe and look at the service. And I'd already listened to many of Michael's messages. Um, I remember leaning over to Gina as Michael was introducing Alan Cagle, who was speaking that day. And uh, Michael had led the service that day. And I, I reached over to Gina and I said, I want to work with that guy. And I had seen his love for the flock, his ability to pastor and shepherd. Uh, shepherds are hard to find. You can find people that will fill a role and have some gifts in some areas, but they're, they're hard to find. And you have to train them. You have to help them. And so I saw that in Michael right away. But then my next comment was this, is we'll never hang on to him. Because <laughs> that's what God does. God raises up men in good churches, strengthens them, disciples them, and sends them out. That's what he's done. If, if, if we're willing to let our hearts, which are a little bit heavy right now, and I've known this for a long time and my heart is still quivering as I'm speaking, we want to obey the Bible. I told Michael this morning, I said, I read over and over this weekend just passages to remind my heart that say things like this. We're sending Timothy to you. We're sending Titus to you. That's what Riverbend's doing. So though, yes, it is a loss of a dear friend, and we won't see him every day, him and his dear bride and, and sweet family, we are sending them. This is what God has called us to do. This is the bigger picture of what we do. I remember being a young man and watching Dr. MacArthur's ministry, and every year I'd show up to Shepherd's Conference, and there was a new guy that was his associate or executive pastor, and he was gone. And, and I finally said, why do you guys keep getting rid of all your guys? He go, no, that's what we're supposed to be doing. Raise men up. Start another church. Go help a work somewhere. And I begin to realize we have often a wrong mentality within the church. Let's gather in. <laughs> Let's hold it all in and not share. <laughs> No, no, that's not the way the Bible teaches. We are to send out. And so I would much rather deal with the human emotion that is fluttering my heart as I speak by letting Michael and Summer go, not just letting them go, but sending them, than rather being disobedient. That's what we do. 
And I think in years to come, brothers and sisters, as the seminary begins to take root and we continue to disciple men, you will see this time and time again as God raises up families, people who love the Lord Jesus Christ, and God equips them, and we send them out. Hey, church family, blessings to you for doing that. For investing for 20 years into a young man who came in here and I've seen pictures. It was hard to tell if they were the high school group or they were leading the high school group. 20 years, Riverbend has poured into them. And now we, Riverbend, gets to send them. He'll always be our guy. We're, we're, I think that's okay. I think that's an okay pride to have. That's our guy over there. That's our Michael that was trained here and sent out. I wrote down two closing thoughts. The world needs gospel-centered churches to send their people out. Did you get that? The world needs gospel-centered churches to send their people out. If we don't do that, the Great Commission comes to a halt. Now, God is sovereign over all that. I get that. But that is our human responsibility is to do those things. So we don't follow men, um, though we're grateful for men like Michael, Roy, others that have been here, but we ultimately follow Christ. And so it's a mixture of, of joy and, and sorrow in a way that we will send them off, but mostly joy when we get over ourselves, isn't it? Because he's going to do what God has prepared him to do. I asked Michael this, is God calling you, Michael? Because I'm not going to send you if God's not calling you. And he said he prayed. And they, he said there was nights where him and Summer spent all night up. And he would pull her into the room and talk and talk. And as you wrestle with it, we know that. We know that time where you are saying, oh, God, not my will, but yours. How do I determine that? And I watched Michael go through that. And as God inched him along in that process, I could see the peace come in his life. I said, Michael, I'll stand with you. We'll send you. And together, the Lord's going to give us another sister church that we can do things with, I think. And so this is a great praise, though it is a little difficult on our hearts. But we know that God has a greater plan. Um, from the pastors and elders, we want you to know we're, we're working uh, very hard at how we're going to plug all those holes. But as Michael said, God has blessed us. And he continues to raise men and women up in this church currently, and he's sending us people from all over coming to this church to be a part of this. So, so we believe God was not going to leave us empty-handed here. He's going to allow us to continue ministry on even, even more. Michael said something to this one. I, I, he says such great things. Sometimes I've got to capture them, write them down. He said this, I think God has, is beginning, this is the beginning. How did you say it, Michael? You're, he is ready to do something. We were talking about that in the fact that, yeah, Michael looks at me. Come, come up here, come up here. You, you said this, you said, I see that God is poised to move forward with Riverbend as we talk through this. And, and I mean, I thought, when, I, when you said that, I thought, okay, he has it. He, he understands that this is the purpose for these things. And I was greatly encouraged by that comment. So 
Oh, Michael, we know we love each other, don't we? Yeah. And there's no one that can come between that. They know how we feel yeah. about each other and, and our pastors and elders that we serve together. So what a blessing, what a blessing to have you here for these years. I have learned underneath you. You've taught me great things, and I'm, I'm grateful for it. And so it's with great joy we want to put hands on you and pray for you. He, they're going to be around a little bit. He has some vacation time. We, it's a huge transition to move your home and your ministry. So we're going to try to free him up as much as possible. Um, but on July 11th, which is a Wednesday night, we've been working on calendars to find when they're going to be here and, and when we can figure this out. July, July 11th is a Wednesday night. We want to honor the Harsh family. Not only just Michael, but Summer and the kids as well. If you know this family, they serve together. And uh, so we want to honor them. We'll have some cake and some remembrances and some great times that night. So please mark that on your calendar. All right. Well, brothers, let's surround this dear brother and let's put our hands on him. And I will pray and thank the Lord uh, for our time. Father in heaven, uh, we don't always understand what you're doing. But at the end of the day, we accept it because you're perfect in all that you do. We love that we can trust you. Michael reminded us this morning to, to make your kingdom the priority in our lives. That's what we're doing today, Lord. We believe this is your will. You have called Michael. This is how the kingdom is going to be advanced. And so though humanly, Lord, we would love to cling on to him and Summer and the kids, we know that you have a greater purpose. And you have reminded us through the word of God today that we are to prioritize the kingdom. And so, Lord, with heavy hearts of many in this room, we give you Michael and Summer and Autumn and Noah and Peyton. We give them to you, Lord, that you may send them out to advance the kingdom of your glorious gospel. We pray for Lakewood Baptist Church that they would receive Michael, love him, care for him, submit to his leadership, that he would be a great blessing in that church. That the things he has learned through the teaching and preaching of the Word of God, through the experience of ministry, would be applied to that ministry there. And Lord, you would do great things at Lakewood. And we would be able to partner together to see the gospel and the kingdom be advanced. This is our hearts, Lord. So heal them where they're hurt, Lord, where it's heavy right now. Give us eternal vision. We need that, Lord. But we do thank you for the Harsh family, Lord. We thank you for their parents, both Summer's parents and Michael's parents, who have been such a great influence in their lives, Lord. We praise you for them, Lord. May you bless them and comfort them as that brings changes to their life. To brother-in-laws and sisters and those who are close, Lord, family that's here, remaining with Riverbend, we pray that you would give them uh, eternal perspective of this as well, Lord. Father, thank you. We can only say uh, with great gratitude, Lord, we worship you for revealing your will. And may we align with your will, Lord. May you hear our prayers, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.